Um, how long do you live in Chinatown, or do you live outside of it? Uh, we have a lot of restaurants in the Michigan. Oh, on Michigan Avenue. Yeah, I think. Okay. I said Michigan Avenue because I assumed, since it's only a few blocks down, he was talking about the street. He ends up giving me his business card, which has the names of the six restaurants he owns, four of them in the state of Michigan. Whoops, my bad. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Radio DePaul podcast. I'm Derek Peters. That clip was from Sanjana Carinth. We'll hear more from her in just a few minutes. Expectations is our theme this week. We judge so many things in our lives simply based on if they meet or exceed or do not meet our own expectations for them. And so today we're going to take a look at several different things that interact with expectations in all sorts of different ways. Perhaps nowhere are we more surprised and confused as a result of our expectations than when we travel to a place that's unfamiliar to us. Sanjana Karanth did just that when she traveled to the culturally rich neighborhood of Chinatown on Chicago's South Side. Let's listen in. Had I visited Chinatown one day later, I might have been able to record some of the music from their parade, held in honor of the Lunar New Year, which occurred earlier on Thursday, February 19th. In honor of the Year of the Sheep, or Goat, or Ram, whichever you prefer, I decided to spend the day in the culturally rich South Chicago neighborhood of Chinatown. Chinatown is located in Chicago's south side, mainly on Cermak and Wentworth Avenues. It's right by the Cermak Chinatown Red Line stop on the L, and really just a few blocks from South Michigan Avenue. On this trip, I was accompanied by my lovely mother, who wanted to check out Chinatown as well. We parked in the super crowded lot on Wentworth Avenue, right under the L and right next to the green and gold Nine Dragon Wall. We walked down Wentworth, past the tall red Chinatown gateway at the corner of Cermak and Wentworth. The neighborhood seemed really busy, probably because of the combination of it being lunchtime and it being warm outside. Hey, 34 degrees is pretty warm for Chicago. Something that struck me right away is that all the shops, whether they're restaurants, clothing stores, or just shops with little trinkets, is that everything was so close together. It's like there wasn't enough square footage, so they squished as many shops as humanly possible. Next to each other, behind each other, on top of each other. My mom and I felt like snacking, so we walked into the Chu Quan Bakery on Wentworth. Everyone knows we walked in by the bells jingling on the door. The bakery was pretty tiny, but incredibly busy. The shop was lined with cakes, tarts, different breads and pastries. Some I've heard of, and some I haven't. We ordered and shared a fried donut covered in sugar. I know, I know, but it's good for the soul, okay? It was crazy cheap, too. 99 cents. While walking down the street with our fried donut, a group of what looked like high school kids walked out of the Chinese Christian Union Church. Walking behind us, we overheard them talking. Their English speaking was fine, just like mine, in fact. They were talking about who's dating who, what's happening this weekend, where they're going out for dinner. And what upset me was that that surprised me. 
Why does that surprise me? Why was it so easy for me to go back to a mindset in which I assume everyone here is a poorly English-speaking immigrant and that so many residents here are just like me? It was weird. I guess it's easy to forget that while this is an ethnic neighborhood, it's still part of something, a city, so much bigger. My mom and I walked into a shop with little trinkets on Cermak. Again, bells jingling on the doors we entered. It was extremely crowded. Not with people, but with merchandise. Rows of glass shelves of merchandise that make you nervous to even walk down the aisles, in case you knock something over. Little money toads to put in your home for good wealth. Jewelry, teas, plants, porcelain plates, Buddha statues, dragon statues, elephant statues, even knives. We spotted a few beautiful bamboo plants on the corner of the store. They're supposed to be good for luck. The lady behind the desk told me how to care for them. She seemed really proud of these bamboo plants she'd grown, and made sure she told me multiple times to keep them out of direct sunlight and out of extremely cold weather. Our last stop was lunch at a restaurant on Cermak, called the Yan Bang Kai Sichuan Restaurant. My mom and I tend to lean towards spicier food, so Sichuan food was definitely something we were looking out for. There's little waterfall pouring in the back on a counter, and the green walls were decorated with more bamboo sticks. It wasn't very busy, so the few that were eating there stared for a bit. We did decide to eat at like 2.30 p.m. after all. The table came with a pot of complimentary green tea, something I was totally not ready for, but way too happy about. The menu had a lot of things I'm used to. Noodles, soups, rice, the basics. What I was not used to seeing on the menu, however, were items like pig blood cake and pork intestines. It caught me off guard. It would probably catch a lot of people off guard. But remembering my open-mindedness, it's important to know that just because we're not used to it doesn't make it bad. Mom and I ordered some Sichuan beef with jalapenos, and it was just as spicy as we had hoped. A man in a chef's outfit, sitting at a table in the back corner of the restaurant, drinking tea and reading the newspaper. He seemed like he was in charge around here, so I approached him and asked if I could talk to him for a moment. Frank Zhang is his name, as he'll let you know. He can be difficult to understand at times, but he was more than happy to talk. Okay, um, uh, can I get your name first? My name is Frank. Frank? Okay, and do you own this restaurant? Yes. Oh, okay. Um, how long have you owned this restaurant? Half a, one half a year in Half a year? Okay. Is it family run or is it uh, we are franchise? Franchise. Franchise. Yeah. Okay. Um, how long do you live in Chinatown or do you live outside of it? Uh, we have a large restaurant in the Michigan. Oh, on Michigan Avenue? Yeah, I think. Okay. I said Michigan Avenue because I assumed since it's only a few blocks down, he was talking about the street. He ends up giving me his business card, which has the names of the six restaurants he owns, four of them in the state of Michigan. Whoops, my bad. Have you seen, um, do you see like a lot of young people here, or do you know what's, what do you, like what kind of people do you usually see here, young people? Uh, I think it's we are, we are restaurant is a little bit special, mm-hmm. other restaurant. Okay. You see it's, uh, is slightly different. Right. And we are many different a lot of restaurants. Well, lots of different yeah, ones, some, yeah. Yeah, some mostly is travel. 
Okay. It's travel people come to here. Oh, trouble people. Yeah, travel people. Oh, okay. Some around the country. Immigrants. Yeah. Okay. England, some French. He tells me there are a lot of troubled families that come here, a lot of immigrants looking for a better place. He also said, which I observed as I walked, is that there are quite a bit of young people here too. I guess I assumed otherwise because many of the immigrants are a generation or two above us. And so they would reside in Chinatown where they're comfortable, while their children and grandchildren live in other parts of the city or the country. It seems I assumed wrong, which looks like the theme of my visit today. Frank was really sweet and made sure our lunch was going well at the restaurant. Even though Chinatown was bustling, it still had a very tight-knit community feeling. Like while there are a ton of people residing here and growing up here, they reside and grow up together. People were friendly to each other, talkative and laughing. I had a lot of assumptions that I unfortunately walked into the neighborhood with, and I'm happy to know that my assumptions were proven wrong. It was a good reminder to keep an open mind when visiting a place you're not used to, and to not necessarily reject things that you don't know about. Chinatown was a blast, and I'll definitely be making a visit back there soon. Sanjana Karanth is a regular contributor to our show. The AMC show Mad Men aired for eight years. And so when the season finale occurred earlier this week, there were plenty of fan expectations to be met. And I recently spoke to DePaul Media Studies professor Paul Booth about whether or not the finale lived up to his expectations. Just a warning, there are major spoilers ahead for the Mad Men series finale. If you have not seen it yet and want to sometime in the future, skip ahead to the 21-minute mark of the podcast, and then you can continue and listen to the rest of the show here, and then come back to it when you're ready. My name is Paul Booth, and I am an associate professor in the College of Communication, and I teach classes on media studies and fan studies and television, all sorts of fun stuff. And Paul, you study, among other things, fan culture and the way that fans interact with media texts and anticipation and expectations play a, a large role in that sort of interaction between fan uh, and media texts. And what ways does like a series finale, like the series finale of Mad Men, bring about those kinds of fan interactions? Well, with any sort of uh, finale of a um, of a popular and critically acclaimed television show like Mad Men, um, there's always expectations. There's um, often unrealistic expectations. I want this ending to do everything. I want it to conclude all the storylines that I care about, um, ignore the ones that I don't care about, and, uh, and also be exciting and interesting and funny and engaging, um, and also have uh, good character development, but also, and I mean, you could just go on and on. And so there's a lot of, a lot writing on a finale, especially when that finale has been. Um, forecast um, when when the creator says, "Okay, this is the last season. This is the last episode. I'm concluding the story here." With something like Mad Men, you get this kind of 
progress. It's been eight years of Mad Men, and it's been critically acclaimed from the beginning. And so you have this enormous, kind of almost decade-long buildup of what is going to happen to these characters. Whether or not fans are disappointed is more about their expectations than it is about what actually happened. Well, and you are also a fan of Mad Men, so what were your expectations coming into the finale? You know, I, I, in preparation for this podcast, I was thinking about that. I knew we were talking about expectations. And I have to admit, I, I'm going to contradict myself by saying I didn't have too many expectations. I had desires. I had things that I would have liked. Right. Um, but I didn't have a whole, like, I really want Don Draper to uh, jump out of an airplane, or I really wanted Peggy Olsen to quit. Right. I, I, uh, what I liked about Mad Men and uh, throughout the whole thing was that really the plot, to me, was less important than kind of the characters and, and where the characters ended up. So I guess you could say my expectations were, I, I was really hoping that um, the characters would be in a good place um, and that these characters, even the ones that aren't nice people, but that you've grown to know, will have some sort of happiness. Yeah, I was. I, I came into it in a similar kind of vein. I knew deep down that Mad Men wasn't the type of show that's never really been the type of show that really is that conducive to a finale uh, like this, like an all-encompassing finale, because of the reasons you mentioned, because plot has always been somewhat secondary uh, as opposed to a show like Breaking Bad, where plot is sort of the engine for the entire show. Um, so it's really easy to, I think, wrap up a story. Uh, what is a lot harder, I think, is to wrap up a character arc. And yeah. I knew that Mad Men was going to be attempting to wrap up like six different character arcs. And so I knew kind of deep down that it probably wasn't going to be like the exclamation point type of finale that I think a lot of people were anticipating. But mm -hmm. I, I did come into it with expectations that it could be a really great episode of the show. Yes, yes. I think that's a really good way of putting it. You know, I wanted this to be a really good episode. Uh, and in fact, I wanted this, like, the second half of this season to be a really good season. Let's briefly talk about sort of the, the big ending where Don is finds himself on this hippie commune retreat type place, kind of a find your inner self type of a thing. And he is witness to in one of these like group therapy sessions, almost he's, you know, he hears this guy who's talking about, you know, this feeling of, of lack in his life. Um, he makes an analogy to a, a refrigerator being something, uh, a piece, an item in the refrigerator who, you know, they is constantly getting passed over for the other types of food. Um, and Don reacts very strongly to this um, and, and cries at the man. And then it sort of cuts to Don meditating and then zooming in slowly to his face and then he smiles and then you hear the I'd like to buy a world of coke ad which then plays uh, as the final image of the series uh, how did you feel about just that very specifically that sequence of events in the very final minutes 
Um, I, 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 I really liked it. Um, I liked the ambiguity of it. I liked that they didn't tell us Don is having this idea for an amazing Coke campaign, mm-hmm. or they're giving us this kind of Don has achieved inner peace while at the same time the ad industry is going to be fine without him. Yeah. Um, I, I, of course, you're talking to someone who also really likes the uh, ambiguous ending of The Sopranos and really likes the ambiguous ending of Lost. So, I mean, I think that um, I, I like ambiguity in my narratives. I like not being told everything. Um, that, that to me is satisfying because it allows me to kind of make up my own mind. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I, I actually really, really like that. I could see why some people didn't, and I could see why... Um, it, 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 it is a little cloying, you know, it's a little saccharine um, to make that sort of connection. Um, but for me personally, I, I, it worked. And uh, um, I kind of, I, I, the a very a cathartic scene where, where Don is hugging the man and crying um, kind of felt very authentic to me um, mm-hmm. in terms of where Don was on his journey. And then the, the, commur- the, the co-commercial just kind of hit home. It was like, yeah, that's, that, I remember thinking that worked. Yeah. I I think it worked, but I sort of have been uh, interpreting it in a slightly different way. I've heard a few critics sort of um, make allusions to this, but I actually read this ending as a very sort of cynical type type of type of ending, really in all the characters, just because I, I think that Don, uh, well, I, I do read the ending as sort of suggesting that Don um, returns to the advertising industry and, you know, comes up with the with the I'd like to buy a world of Coke uh, campaign. And I sort of think that that's a very um, it's a very cynical way to sort of end it after when you when you juxtapose it with him in sort of this hippie commune sort of therapy session where he's, you know, having this cathartic moment with this other man that's really um, hurting and expressing um, a lot of things that I actually don't think that Don, I don't think the the problems that the man is, is talking about are the same problems that Don is having, but I think that the sort of emotion and the state of mind of the two men are similar. And so you have this cathartic moment where the man's talking about so much like existential pain. And then you sort of make the connection that like all of this inner self-discovery just sort of leads to another advertisement to get somebody to buy a Coke. Yeah. You know? Um, and I also, yeah, go ahead. uh, And I also think that, you know, some of the other character storylines are sort of set up to fail. Uh, I, I don't think that, like I said before, I don't think that the Pete Campbell storyline is going to, um, I, I, I don't read them, that storyline as, you know, succeeding, like Pete and Trudy's marriage uh, succeeding. Right. I don't read Roger and Marie Calvé, uh, their trip to Paris together as sort of a lasting happiness for either of them. It seems like we've been in a similar place with all of these characters before. Um, and it hasn't worked out in the sort of storybook way that they were expecting. So I have a hard mm-hmm. time reading this ending and interpreting it as, Oh, well, this is going to, this is the, the one that's going to work for a lot of these characters. 
Yeah, I think, and I think that's a really viable reading. I mean, I think um, if Manben has shown us anything, it is that what we expect to happen to a character is not what ends up happening to that character, um, because we're being we're being fooled, right? We're being fooled by narrative. We're being fooled by the media that we've consumed. You know, how many thousands of hours have we watched of happy ending? Um, so Mad Men giving us an ostensive happy ending for the characters. I'd, I'd say all the characters kind of end on a happy note. Uh, given our history with Mad Men, we know that that can't be, that can't be real. That can't be um, authentic. Um, that, can't, that can't be what actually happens. Um, but then, isn't that advertising, right? Mm-hmm. If, to give us this happy world where everything is right because we've used this product or we've had a Coke. My thanks to Paul Booth for stopping by and chatting. My conversation with Paul Booth lasted way longer than we had time to put on the show today. So if you would like to listen to the entire conversation, we will be putting that up as sort of a bonus episode for you to listen to sometime later this week. One film that succeeded all kinds of expectations has been Mad Max Fury Road. Here to talk about it, Matthew Barbusio and Mike Constantino from Popcast. What's up, everybody? I'm Matt. Mike. And we're from Popcast. We're here to talk about last weekend's expectations at the box office. So, Mike, last weekend, Pitch Perfect 2 and Mad Max opened. And I just wanted to talk about, since our theme is expectations this week, what expectations did we have going into this weekend? And who do we think would become triumphant? As we know now, Pitch Perfect 2 completely trounced Mad Max. And then we also want to talk about Mad Max and kind of the weird expectations that were thrust upon that movie. It, like There were none basically, and then now it's kind of this cult hit at this point. Well, I think as far as expectations go, um, we we expected Pitch Perfect to dominate. It's PG-13, you know, Mad Max is rated R, and this reception of the first Pitch Perfect was, you know, so well-received that you almost know that the sequel will be a big money, successful film. Mm -hmm. Um, That doesn't mean, though, that we didn't want Mad Max to uh, succeed, uh, especially leading in how good it looked and just the the buzz over the film. Yeah. Um, I just think also the expectations of, man, what was going to be the most female-centric movie of the weekend? You asked me that a year ago. Okay, Mad Max and then Pitch Perfect 2. And most people, I'm pretty sure everybody would have said Pitch Perfect 2 would it, was going to be the movie for all the girl to, for all the women to go see. Turns out it was Mad Max. Um, what are your thoughts on that? It, still in disbelief. Uh, just the fact that Mad Max uh, is such a, a strong film for female characters. Yeah. Uh, you know, and then juxtaposing it to Pitch Perfect. Yeah, you're right. Pitch Perfect, it's a entire female cast, but what what they're doing in Pitch Perfect uh, doesn't come close to what's being done with Mad Max yeah. um, for female characters moving forward. Yeah, so that's a lot to do with Charlize Theron's performance uh, as Furiosa in the film, and it's pretty incredible, and she does a lot to kind of thrust forward the female action star. And I like to think of these characters not just as... I like, I'd like to... Look at me, I'm speaking as though I'm, you know, 
like spearheading the feminist movement. But I like to think one of the one of these days we're not looking at them as just strong female characters, but just strong characters. And I think they are just strong characters in general, not just female. Like they just like the fact that they're women do not define them in the slightest. You know, or the fact that Tom Hardy, like even if they're male, it wouldn't define them. They're just strong, strong characters, and they're just really brought through on screen by some really great performances and some uh, relatively good writing. I think the writing is easily the weakest part of the film, just because it's kind of underwritten. There well, isn't much. There isn't much writing. It's min- it. It's minimal. Yeah. Uh, and talk about how this is an action film, and like how you know how incredible the action scenes in this movie are, and how kind of they're centered around the women. Yeah, well, you know, just a week uh, off of watching Mad Max, I still am thinking about the action sequences. Uh, It's so refreshing to see a film that's roughly 90% practical effects and, you know, some digital effects here and there, but only as a last resort and only to enhance the film where everything else is just cars on cars and camera movement and it's yeah. it's beautifully shot yeah. uh and you really appreciate it it's it adds a whole another n- level of immersion uh while watching a film that you know isn't one giant cg uh film yeah one critic that i really one thing that he said about the film was it feels like a tetanus shot on wheels like it is just rusty and grimy Mm -hmm. and sharp and deadly and just punk rock as hell it's really really cool and i just think what are our expect so let's just maybe wrap this up uh what are our expectations moving forward for this film in the terms of uh its success moving forward is it going to carry on through word of mouth or do you think it's just going to die Fortunately, I think this week it'll do really well only because, um, you know, Tomorrowland comes out, but not much else really comes out. And mm-hmm. I don't feel that like Tomorrowland has had um, that much buzz around it. So I'm, I'm thinking Mad Max will do well. I think it'll be around the two, three for the weekend. It'll yeah. uh, hold its own. And then moving forward, look, George Miller wants to make some more. I want to see more. Yeah, I think. What more do we need? Yeah, I think the next ones that he make will make more money than this one. Mm-hmm. I think just word of mouth. I think DVD sales are going to really help this one. Um, and hey, if it doesn't, we have a film that we really love and we're going to like cherish for a while. This is a really, really special movie. Yeah, it, it really it works as a, a standalone. So yeah, you know we could take it as it is and just really appreciate this film. And who would have expected? You know, oh, yeah, who would have expected? Mad Mike host Popcast on Radio DePaul on Friday nights from 7 to 9. When DePaul made the announcement earlier this year that Dave Leto had been hired to be the new men's basketball coach, fans' expectations started ratcheting up immediately. This week on Blue Demon Weekly, Eli Herskovich caught up with some DePaul assistant head coaches to talk about where the team is and what their expectations are for the coming season. Welcome back to Blue Demon Weekly, right here on Radio DePaul Sports, the student voice of your DePaul Demons. I'm Eli Herskovich. Thanks for coming back onto the show. A couple more things to touch on here. We've got about 20 minutes left, and a good 20 minutes, a very unforgettable 20 minutes on Blue Demon Weekly because you'll get to hear from a couple more of the assistant head coaches, one being the associate head coach, Rick Carter, 
and the other Patrick Sellers. Billy Garrett Sr. was not at the event last Thursday because I'm assuming he was out recruiting in the Chicagoland area because DePaul's a couple spots left. Before we get into what Rick Carter had to say, just talking to the associate head coach makes you believe in DePaul basketball. And it, it's tough to echo that to you because you couldn't see it. The fire, the passion in his eyes too, that the belief that DePaul basketball will, will be back was in Coach Lato's eyes, Patrick Sellers' eyes, who you'll hear from after Rick Carter. But Coach Carter was very, very inspirational and very passionate in the way he coached. And to hear that and just to hear that energy level is something that I haven't been able to experience at my time at DePaul University. Just to get back to, for DePaul to get back to the way and the program that they want it to be, you need a head coach or an, and you'd head coach like Dave Leto and an assistant like Rick Carter. And Rick Carter talked about where he got his coaching style from. Xavier has a particular system that they run, and it, it's, it's our who they are. You know, they call it the Xavier way. They always run the pack line defense. They always guard things the exact same way year in and year out. So by the time you become a junior and your senior, you're essentially teaching the freshman and sophomore what to do, and there's no surprises. So you become really, really good at that system. Great defense obviously leads to great offense and easy baskets. So that was a lot of success that we had there. But it wasn't just there that like I've kind of learned that. Like When I was at Michigan State under Tom Izzo, it's really more about holding people accountable to whatever your system is, whether it's the pack line, whether it's man-to-man principles. That's really what it all comes down to. Like There are going to be absolutes on the defensive end of the court. You're going to do things a certain way, and if you can't, you're not going to play. Where on offense, you're going to have a lot more freedom. That's just kind of how it works. Defense leads to offense, and boy, does that make me happy to hear just to, to have that side of the basketball start bringing everything else up the floor and, and getting everything else going for DePaul basketball because defense has been such a liability for this team, especially last year, finishing 10th in the Big East. Think about it. DePaul basketball was middle of the, middle of the pack in offense last season at 5th, 5th in the Big East Conference. So if you get middle of the pack defense which DePaul didn't get. If that had happened, though, you're probably looking at an NIT bid. On the flip side, it didn't happen, of course. And for defense to be the number one thing on the plate for DePaul, for DePaul men's basketball to begin their main course from, to, to start eating from defense first, uh, a bit of a weird analogy. But you go from defense to your dessert, which is offense, which is obviously what all basketball players like. Maybe the vegetables are the defense. You got to eat your vegetables before you eat your dessert. And maybe there's no main entree either. Just vegetables and dessert for DePaul basketball. And if you if you start with your defense, which Rick Carter is preaching, and he got a lot out of his guys at Xavier and Missouri with his time. Actually, he was with Dave Leto for a season at Missouri and Frank Haith when, when Missouri made it to the NCAA tournament. Having the chance to hear that and, and get defense and make that your number one priority as a associate head coach is a huge plus for DePaul basketball. And Rick Carter is preaching, and hopefully he can deliver that side of the basketball. Next up, Dave Leto mentioned how DePaul basketball was doing their intensified practices, and Coach Carter had more to say about those practices and what he's trying to get out of his players in those 40 to 50 minute drills. I'm always going to coach how I've always coached. Like, I'm a very passionate, very energetic, and my thing more than anything is I believe relationships are the most important thing in this game. So whether I'm an assistant coach, whether I'm an associate head coach, whether I'm a head coach somewhere, my job is to develop great relationships with those kids off the court 
so then I can get them to do things on the court that they don't necessarily want to do. I always relate it to a bank account. If I were to go to a random bank and try to withdraw money and I never deposited anything, the bank would tell me to leave. They would say, you have no money here. They wouldn't listen. Now, if I've deposited money, deposited money, deposited money, at any point in time, I can go take a negative withdrawal. I can go take $500 out of my account, $200 out of my account. People are the same way. If you don't invest in people on a day-to-day basis and give them positive emotional deposits, there's no way you can ever withdraw something later on. So for me, I'm going to be that way whether I'm an associate head coach, head coach, assistant. It's just building that relationship with that kid so he trusts me. And it's not just about basketball. It's about their day-to-day lives. It's about their families. It's about what they like, what they dislike. That's how a coach gets the most out of his players. You start, obviously, DePaul has preached defense early on, but to get the most out of your guys on defense first, again, relating it back to the vegetables, to get the most, to be able to make your guys eat the vegetables you have to show that you care about them back, that you believe in them, that you that you think they can succeed, and you care about them not just on the basketball court, not just in practice, that you care about your their interests, that you care about who they are as a person, not just as a player. And Coach Carter has delivered that to me in the messages that you just heard. Having the opportunity to be an associate head coach, he doesn't think there isn't, isn't much of a transition from being an assistant or even taking the jump to head coach, whether you're whatever level of coach you are, you have to show that to your players that you genuinely care about who they are as a person, not just who they are as a player. And that's how DePaul is going to get the most out of their players. That's how they've been able to get the most out of them through practice. And not just not just Allen Iverson practice talking about practice, but DePaul basketball practice indeed. And Coach Carter also brought up how he's going to handle or how they have handled the adverse situations at practice so far, as Coach Lato mentioned earlier on in the show. What I've seen probably more than anything is a willingness, and that's been on both sides of the ball for the guys. You can tell that they really want to get better, and you can tell that they really want structure. It's been a little bit difficult defensively because we've been doing groups of four, and really what we're trying to do more than anything with our guys is we're trying to put them in adverse situations. We're trying to get them as tired as possible, so like that's when you want to break down. And when you can learn to fight through adversity when you're tired, it becomes really easy every other time in the game. So we've been doing 40-minute workouts. We haven't been any taking any breaks in those workouts. They've been running, they've been shooting, they've been sprinting, and then they'll get a break at the end. And obviously that's the same length of a game. So if you can do it for 40 minutes and not take a break, when you get into a game and there's timeouts, there's stoppages of plays, it makes the game a little bit simpler. Coach Carter is getting his guys ready for the stretch run, for the Big East schedule. And the non-conference schedule, too. DePaul has some tough non-conference games. They're starting off their rivalry next season with Northwestern. I have no idea why U of I isn't on the schedule for the Big Ten Big East Challenge. They also get Penn State, which is a part of that, too. Stanford's back on the schedule. That's a home-and-home kind of thing. DePaul played and beat Stanford in late November of their season when they were on the verge of being 6-1 and and then collapsing before the Big East schedule started. The non-conference schedule is going to be tough. The the Big East schedule is going to be very tough, too. And Coach Carter is getting his guys ready to go for that those tough times when you lose a tough basketball game or especially in, in a game, not just after a loss or after a, a close win. How do you feel afterwards? How do you feel in the moment? How do you get ready for that moment when there's 18 seconds left and your energy is drained? He's trying to prepare them for those kind of situations right now, getting them ready for the two minutes left. When you're lagging and you don't know if you can make it back down the court, but you got to find something in you to do so. And those these 40 to 50 minutes straight practices or 
shooting drills, defensive drills, getting the guys ready for the stretch run, especially a guy like Billy Garrett Jr. who has sickle cell disease, and I'm not making an excuse up for him, but getting getting a player like that who has to deal with other things and other other physical aspects or physical things that might drain him on the floor, doing this is going to prepare him for those moments even more. That might have rhymed, but I didn't mean it to rhyme. Coach Carter and the rest of the staff have done a terrific job of that. And Coach also talked about getting the getting the most out of his players and what his players need to do. Not just Billy Garrett Jr. but and, and the rest of this team, but what the players need to do in order, order to improve on the court. I have a kind of a unique perspective coming from Xavier and scouting DePaul for the last two years. I think it's a group that's very, very, very talented. Like we used to say in our offices all the time there that DePaul is probably one of the top three talents in the conference and we really haven't lost too much of that we have a lot of that returning with you know Billy Garrett Tommy Hamilton Mike Henry like we got a lot of those guys back we have all those guys back that I just named so I'm expecting a lot from us offensively like I think we're really 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 going to be able to score the ball defensively which is going to be a great thing is there it's going to be new for them like they're going to have to guard the entire game and that's where they're going to be challenged so as long as their willingness and their eagerness stays where it's at we should be fine on both sides of the ball because that's what we're going to hold them accountable to. That's the standard we're going to hold them to. Eli hosts Blue Demon Weekly every Wednesday from 5.30 to 7 on Radio DePaul Sports That's going to do it for us this week on the Radio DePaul podcast. You can check out our SoundCloud page at soundcloud.com slash Radio DePaul. You can subscribe and review us on iTunes. That would help us out. You can listen to Radio DePaul 24-7 at radio.depaul.edu. And you can listen to Radio DePaul Sports by going to that same address and clicking on the Sports tab. We'll be back next week with more of some of the best bits from Radio DePaul. Chicago's College Connection.